Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For decades, Democrats and Republicans fought hard and relatively evenly for rural voters. But recently, rural America has grown solidly Republican. The next episode of our midterm series heads to Maine to see how Democrats are fighting back. And much of archaeology pushes back the first known date of some activity by a little bit. But on the island of Borneo, an incomplete skeleton reveals a shocking discovery, revising the first known instance of surgery by 24,000 years. But first... Russia is escalating its war in Ukraine. In a televised address this morning, President Vladimir Putin announced Russia's largest military mobilization since the Second World War. In the pre-recorded speech, originally planned to air last night, Mr. Putin raised the specter of nuclear weapons, warning the West against what he called nuclear blackmail. He also spoke about plans announced earlier this week to hold referendums in Russian-backed regions of Ukraine. For Russians who saw the speech, the prospect of being pressed back into military service will bring the war worryingly close to home. Well, it means that the Russian army can now call up for military service citizens who are in the armed forces reserve. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. And he said especially those who served in the armed forces before or have certain military professions and relevant experience. And John, I would guess that means things like engineering skills, IT skills, that kind of thing, specialist areas. And what we had after Putin's speech was a follow-up from his defense minister, Sergei Shoigu, who said that 300,000 Russians would be called up as part of this mobilization drive, and that would be those with previous military experience. So 300,000 ex-servicemen, in other words. So it's 300,000 people with some military skills. Is this a response, you think, to a manpower shortage or a skill shortage in the army or both? 
Absolutely both. And I, of course, must stress that 300,000 is Sergei Shoigu's figure. I would call it highly aspirational. I'm not sure they can reach those numbers. But yes, this is going to be both sets of people. And the fact is, Russia's army has shrunk over the years. This is not the Red Army of law. This is not the Soviet army. It has shrunk in size. And then when the war began, the army was decimated by Ukrainians. It lost huge numbers of people, maybe 60, 70, 80,000 casualties that is killed and wounded in total. So it suffered grievous losses. And what we have found is that they can't defend this huge front line, this thousand kilometer front line. It was a manpower problem, ultimately, that resulted in weak spots appearing along the line in Kharkiv province that opened up space for Ukraine to conduct this spectacular counteroffensive two weeks ago. And it's this manpower shortage that has forced Russia's army to rely on mercenaries, convicts, on people press-ganged from Ukrainian territory in Donbass. So there's a clear element of desperation that was creeping in to Russia's recruitment policies. Why do you call the number 300,000 aspirational? Because it's easy to get warm bodies, right? You can threaten them with jail, you can cart them off in vans, you can pull in prisoners, but warm bodies are not the end of the problem. These people will have some military experience, so you don't have to train them how to fire a gun, but do they have officers to lead them? Do they have equipment with which they can fight? Do they have enough secure handheld radios? You know, it's the absence of all this kit and of leadership and of refresher training, because all the officers who would train them are basically dying or fighting, that is going to be the major constraint, the big bottleneck on Russia's generation of combat power here. So that's mobilization. Let's move on to the referendums he mentioned. What did he mean by those? Where will they take place and what are they voting on? Well, we've known for a long time that Russia is planning these sort of fake referendums in the provinces of Ukraine that it occupies fully or partially. So that is Donbass, which is Donetsk and Luhansk. And in the south, it's Kherson and Zaporizhia. And we saw yesterday on Tuesday that officials in those places said they were going to hold referendums on joining Russia between September 23rd and 27th, in other words, in two days' time. And they are transparently going to be the same kind of rigged poll that Russia used in 2014 to facilitate the illegal annexation of Crimea, which was also Ukrainian territory. These are kind of puppet regimes that will hold fabricated votes. They'll probably rig the results. And the result will be that Russia, if it wants to, and we think it now does, will be able to formally absorb these places into the Russian Federation. And the goal of doing that, I would guess, is that it allows Putin to treat any attack on those provinces as an attack on Russian territory? Well, this is a war of conquest. So the territory itself, adding to Russia's state, rebuilding Russia's empire, if you want to put it in those more dramatic terms, is part of the aim beyond anything else. Then there's a manpower aspect to this, which is that if this is suddenly Russian territory, well, you can conscript from these places. You can build up manpower from these places, which is a not trivial consideration for his depleted army. And then, yes, the third consideration is exactly as you say, John, if this becomes Russian territory and Ukraine then attacks these places, the Kremlin can say, look, Ukraine is not just liberating its own territory, it's attacking Russia. And if you attack Russia, then our nuclear weapons may come into play. Russian nuclear doctrine actually says that nuclear weapons come into play only if there is a threat to the existence of the state. But I think we will see the Russian government say, this is now a Ukrainian attack on Russian soil, and therefore the West had better stop it, or who knows where this might end up. Well, that brings us to the third thing you mentioned from his speech, which is nuclear threats. What did he say and how seriously should we take his words? 
тем, кто позволяет себе такие заявления в отношении России. Хочу напомнить. Путин promised to use all resources we have to defend our people. А по отдельным компонентам и более современными, чем у стран НАТО. And I think later in the speech he added, it's not a bluff. I want to remind you that our country also has various means of destruction. А те, кто пытаются шантажировать нас ядерным оружием, должны знать, что роза ветров может развернуться и в их сторону. So, in some sense, this is no different to the speech with which he began this war, if you cast your mind back, John, to February 24th, the early hours where he talked about anyone standing in our way would meet with grave destruction, clear allusion to nuclear weapons. What I think has changed over the course of this conflict is our original concerns were about a NATO-Russia clash. Russia perhaps attacking NATO convoys, a conflagration, escalating to the use of nuclear weapons in some fashion. The concern we have today is very different. It's about Russian weakness, not Russian strength. It's a fear that Russia may be losing the conflict and out of desperation may use nuclear weapons, perhaps a small, what we call sub-strategic or tactical nuclear weapon, to try and shock Ukraine and shock the West into submission. It's by no means clear to me whether Putin was alluding to that, whether he was just conducting generic saber-rattling. And I would say that we have to treat these nuclear threats with a critical eye. We shouldn't swallow them uncritically because ultimately Ukraine has been attacking Russian soil with special forces, with helicopter raids in places like Belgorod. It's been attacking Russian-occupied soil in places like Crimea with missiles and special forces for months and months. And there has been no dramatic apocalyptic reaction. So I'm not going to go as far as to say this is a bluff because we can't know that for sure. But I will say that ultimately these nuclear threats are probably designed to produce a certain psychological reaction in the West. And we should always keep that strategic intention in mind as we interpret these words. And this week, of course, the UN General Assembly has been meeting in New York. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has taken up a whole lot of attention. Turkey's president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, seemed to be positioning himself as an interlocutor. He said that Putin was looking to end the war. This seems the opposite of that. Does this strike you as an escalation? It's undoubtedly an escalation. Ultimately, Russia is losing this war, John. It doesn't have the manpower or the morale or the impetus to conduct any more big offensives. So its offensive capacity is for now spent. Ukraine is exploiting the resulting weaknesses, which result in things like this incredible counteroffensive that liberated huge chunks of territory and put even the position of Donbass at risk, Donbass being the ostensible aim of Putin's war effort. And in the south, in Kherson, you have perhaps 20,000 Russian troops squeezed against the Dnieper River with their means of resupply being steadily cut off by missiles and trapped under miserable conditions. So uh, Russia had to do something. And for Putin, this is now in some ways existential, not in terms of the survival of his country, but in terms of the reputation and therefore perhaps the survival of his regime. And therefore, I think this was a step that was going to come. He had delayed it as long as possible. It still isn't a national mobilization. He's not saying he's going to send callow 18-year-olds straight into the war in ways that would prompt howls of outrage and potential protests from their mothers and their families. But nonetheless, this is a Putin that is really on the back foot down and is finding some way to revive and rescue his failing war effort. All right, Shashank, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thanks very much, John.
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This year's Piscataquis Valley Fair in Maine took place in one of the most rural parts of America. There was plenty on offer for me and my producer, Stevie Hertz, to find. Prize cows, award-winning pickles, and a sundae with three types of maple syrup. But Democratic voters were harder to come across. I'm a Democrat, but voting Republic. In America, not that long ago, the two parties fought hard and almost evenly for rural votes. These days, most rural areas are solidly Republican. I don't like the Democrats anymore. They've uh, gone so far to the left, they're not for the working class anymore. What do you think, when you think of a Democrat, what does that mean to you? Uh, to me, that means higher taxes, okay. fewer jobs. Yeah. When you think of Democrats, what do you think of? I think it's all just a hoax. Control as much as they can control, and everybody just turns a blind eye to everything. On this, the latest in our midterm series, looking at the broader forces influencing power and politics ahead of November's elections, we're finding out how Democrats are trying to win back white, rural, and working-class voters. Between now and Election Day, we're going to different House districts around the country, each chosen to illuminate a salient theme in American politics. This week, we're in Maine's 2nd District. Maine has just two congressional districts. The first is small and liberal. The second is rural and huge, bigger than Ireland. It's significantly older, whiter, and poorer than the rest of America, so perhaps it's not surprising that Donald Trump won it twice. But so did Barack Obama. Its rightward shift isn't unique. It's part of a national pattern of rural America moving away from Democrats. Here, this local summer fair is still an agricultural event, complete with livestock. Lots and lots of livestock. If you signed up for the pig scramble, come to the pulling rig. If you signed up for the pig scramble, come to the pulling rig. At the pig scramble, pigs are released. On your back. Get set. Go! And kids, some as young as six, compete to catch them. Bail right onto him. Don't be scared. <laughs> Grab right onto his leg. Grab right onto his leg. Bail right in there. And if you catch one, you keep it. If you catch a pig, you want to get it out of the bag as soon as possible. Get it out of the To bag raise or sell, there are enough pig farms in the area to give them good homes. The county's Republican Party has a stall at the fair with buttons, hats, and local candidates. I'm Jim White. I'm running for House District 30 in Piscataquis County, Maine. Some of Somerset. Biggest things, I'm a, I'm a Second Amendment advocate. I've owned a gun shop for 30 years. Mm-hmm. I'm a pro-life individual. I'm, I'm a Christian. So many of my core beliefs align with the Republican Party. Up here, people hunt, not just for a hobby, but for food. Gun stores and guns themselves are commonplace. Tell me about the raffle. 
the AR-15 raffle? Yeah. Well, last year we did our first firearms raffle. We mm -hmm. raffled off two firearms. Mm -hmm. So uh, we did it again, uh -huh. and um, it seems very successful. Several other committees around the state have been doing firearms raffles. But a Democrat has represented this district in Congress since 2018. Jared Golden is young, not quite 40 years old. He grew up here before joining the Marines and serving in Afghanistan and Iraq. I thank the gentlewoman from Florida for yielding. The purpose of my amendment is to call attention to the shortage of VA mental health and substance use disorder facilities. Golden is plain spoken and tattooed with kind of a reserved demeanor. He isn't a typical glad-handing politician. His detractors and supporters alike say his most striking quality is attentiveness. He listens to people. For example, veterans in my home state of Maine must travel hundreds of miles out of state to access long-term treatment facilities. That's just unacceptable. We're just ramping up right now, obviously. Mm -hmm. Some are doing doors, mm -hmm. some are, are, are doing events. and uh, Joanne Mason is the chair of the Kennebec County Democrats, helping local candidates, like Golden, with their election campaigns. How do you think he has managed to do so well in a district that voted for Donald Trump? What is his secret? I don't think it's a secret. I think it's uh, it's right out there. He, there's many things. Um, one, he thinks very independently. Mm. He pays attention to what the community needs. He's a Marine, which is huge. People recognize that this is a man who cares about his community. He's a man who, you know, who's handled guns and owns guns. And that's not a, a hugely democratic thing to put out there. Golden's won twice, both times by narrow margins. This year, he's running against Bruce Poliquin, who he beat in 2018 to win the seat. But while people might like Golden himself, the Democrats' reputation is still toxic to many in rural America. I hear a lot of people complain about Democrats are so liberal and they want everything that, you know, they want this or what. It's not the case. In my opinion, Democrats are very vast group. So Golden has worked to separate himself from that national brand, which means distancing himself from the president. I'm Jared Golden, and that's why in Congress, I'm an independent voice for you, taking on my own party to stand up for Maine families. I was the only Democrat to vote against trillions of dollars of President Biden's agenda because I knew it would make inflation worse. Golden was the only House Democrat to vote against Joe Biden's massive Build Back Better Act. And he recently came out against the administration's plans to forgive student debt. Jared Golden isn't the last of a vanishing breed, but he's a remnant of a vanishing breed of, of rural Democrats who represent a kind of old school, liberal, working class politics that increasingly reads in, in the contemporary Democratic Party as centrist or center right. James Bennett is The Economist Lexington columnist. If you ask him, why are you a Democrat? His answer is because he believes government can play a very important role in helping people. His concern, I think, about the contemporary Democratic Party is that it's got kind of a grandiose view of that role. And he says, wants to help everybody, including people who don't really need it. And he's con very concerned about the deficit and excessive government spending. Rural Democrats weren't always so rare. As recently as 2009, there were Democratic senators from North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, Iowa, Nebraska, and Alaska. But that has changed dramatically. There's been a precipitous drop for the Democrats and a rise for the Republicans. Most recently, it was a 17-point gap. 
among rural voters. And Donald Trump was particularly successful, but I think he was just exacerbating a trend that was already underway of a growing affinity with the Republicans among rural voters and a growing sense of alienation from the Democrats who are increasingly seen, and this is one of Jared Golden's critiques of the party, seen as a, a party of a, a bi-coastal, college-educated elite. But Golden shows that rural America isn't a lost cause for the Democrats. They just need the right candidates and attitudes. His fear, I think, is that the Democrats have, have seemed insulated. Comments like Hillary Clinton's comment about uh, the basket of deplorables. You know, to just be grossly generalistic, you could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Or even going back to Barack Obama saying that rural voters tend to cling to their guns and religion. Those, those sorts of remarks continue to reverberate out there in the country and leave a lot of voters, I think, feeling that they're looked down upon. That's let Republicans make inroads on cultural grounds, often using that sense of grievance. But as those cultural wars are fought, many rural Americans continue to struggle. I would say there's a dichotomy of wealth here in Hancock County. Um, we have lots of summer people. We have lots of... Sitting on Maine's rugged and beautiful coast, Ellsworth is a quintessential New England village with multicolored clabbered houses, low brick shops, and a gleaming white church on a green. But Andy Matthews, who runs the Loaves and Fishes food pantry there, sees a different side of the town. And so we have lots of higher-level incomes, but we have just as many homeless. We have a lot of people who are really struggling. We have working poor. We have a lot of working poor here. So they are working. They're doing the best they can, but it's not enough to make ends meet. Inflation is hitting hard here. The gap between the median household income in Maine's 2nd District and the median household income in America is widening. As of July 15th, we had served 2,868 family visits, feeding over 7,000 individuals. That was our total for all of 2021, and we reached that by July 15th. Rural Maine's a tough place to be poor. There's no public transport, a lot of jobs are seasonal, and the cost of living is surprisingly high. I'm just curious, how are you thinking about elections this November? What are you thinking about? I'm looking for somebody that's not just about taxes or raising taxes. I'm looking for somebody that's got some honesty. Okay. And that's really hard with politics to find honest people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what I will be looking for when I go to vote. Talking to voters at the food pantry, only one person mentioned a specific candidate or party. Most are searching for something more fundamental. Listen to the people because they don't listen. And, you know, go out and meet the people and go to places where people need help and listen to them. I think that's a huge thing, don't you? For more coverage of America's upcoming elections and American politics more broadly, check out our sister podcast, Checks and Balance. This week, the crew discusses America's Ukraine policy. And you can find all the Economist midterms coverage at economist.com slash midterms 2022.
you like The Intelligence, please rate us on your podcast app. And if you like The Economist, sign up for Economist Education's six-week online course on business writing and storytelling. Learn to write with clarity, punch, and pith, and gain the tools to become a more effective business communicator. The course is designed by many of the journalists you hear on this show. Register now and enjoy a 15% discount as a listener to The Intelligence. Go to economist.com slash writing course and use the discount code intelligence at checkout. Early this month, a very interesting paper came out and uh, it basically announced a discovery of the oldest known grave in Southeast Asia. Better yet, the skeleton they found there was a little bit interesting. Dylan Berry writes about science for The Economist. On a closer inspection, it actually looked a lot like the foot had been amputated. Now, later dating suggests that uh, the skeleton's about 31,000 years old. If that's true, this would make this the oldest evidence of a surgical procedure that we're aware of. The story takes place on Borneo. It's this beautiful tear-shaped island split three ways between Indonesia, Malaysia, and Brunei. And it's perfectly bisected by the equator. So it is about as tropical as it can get. The part of the island the grave was discovered in is East Kalimantan. And what makes this part of the island so interesting is its geology. It is dominated by something called karst terrain. Groundwater and just the trickle of water through the landscape creates these deep, complicated networks of limestone caves. And these traditionally are terrific for archaeology. So tell me more about what exactly was found this time around. So the discovery we're talking about happened in a cave called Liang Tebo. For all kinds of reasons, archaeologists have been exploring this region over the last 10 years. And uh, a team of archaeologists from Griffith University in Australia basically dug an exploratory two-by-two-meter trench into the cave. And what they found was a 31,000-year-old grave with, with what appears to be a young man. The reason the scientists involved in the study are pretty confident that this was an amputation and that the bones just didn't go missing, is that the shin bones look unusual. So firstly, there's kind of a bony growth at the end of the portions of bone we have. And that's consistent with kind of modern day clinical cases of uh, successful amputations. Usually if somebody's lost a foot naturally, perhaps through an accident, usually that's associated with trauma. So you would see bone fracturing. But this kind of ending of the bone, which looks artificial, is very, very neat and neat in a way that we don't really see out of modern day amputations. And based on the bony growth on the bones and how much they've wasted away, it appears that the surgery would have happened sometime in his childhood, probably at around the age of 12. And it looks like he survived for kind of six to nine years after that, which is remarkable given the point of history that we're talking about. What do we learn from evidence of an amputation that happened this long ago? So this is a really dramatic find because the oldest known amputation or kind of major surgery of this type that we're aware of in the prehistorical record is an amputation in France of a Neolithic, so Stone Age farmer, about 7,000 years ago. And that showed evidence of, you know, quite advanced surgical medical techniques being used to remove part of a man's arm from the kind of forearm down. This potentially pushes back these kinds of activities around modern humans, 24,000 years. And that's a, that's a big deal. That's really a curveball. The idea that people were doing such sophisticated medical operations and medical procedures 30,000 years ago is remarkable. I'm not sure anybody would have guessed that before this discovery. So that suggests quite an advanced, for that time, knowledge of, I mean, how to do a surgery and have the patient survive. 
Yeah, surgery is hard <laughs> and amputations are even harder for a variety of reasons, right? So the, the first thing you've got to take into account is if you're going to remove the lower third of a person's leg, the odds of them bleeding out are huge. So to have successfully amputated the lower third of a child's left leg required detailed knowledge of anatomy in that part of the body. So whoever was doing the operation would have had to have known how to move around and evade veins, arteries, blood vessels, and deal with nerves, and then to be able to cut through bone. All of that suggests a much, much, much more sophisticated level of medical and anatomical knowledge in these communities than we could have imagined before. That's all very interesting, but potentially even more interesting is the fact that, you know, if you're going to do this kind of operation, even if you do everything else perfectly, you know, you have perfect anatomical knowledge, you do the surgery all perfectly well, the odds of infection 31,000 years ago, just out in a tropical rainforest, are enormous. And the fact that, firstly, we see no evidence of infection, hints that maybe they had some kind of chemical knowledge of how to prevent infections. And maybe just based on the you know, remarkable plant biodiversity of the island, maybe they had found ways to use some local plants as antiseptic treatment or for antimicrobial treatment of the wounds. And all of that, in addition to the kind of advanced medical knowledge they would have needed to have to pull off such a surgery, suggests that we ought to take the medical knowledge of these communities much more seriously and push back our estimates for when really sophisticated medical knowledge and the, the ability to perform really sophisticated medical procedures arose in the historical record. Thanks very much for joining us, Dylan. Absolute pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.